So I don't know if you can think back uh, to the time in your life when you were the hungriest you've ever been. When's, what's the hungriest you've ever been? I, for Americans, many of us may not really be able to think of a time when we were truly, you know, hungering to the point that our body was starting to break down. Uh, we're, we've, we've got more food than we know what to do with here in this country. But maybe there was a time in your life, maybe you were fasting. Uh, maybe it was during a military training exercise for those of you who are service members. Sometime when you went without food for a period of time and your body was exhausted and you knew that you needed energy, that you needed sustenance and you could feel the effects physically. And then you can remember the feeling of finally eating a, a full meal and the satisfaction that, that it brings when you are like, I'm not hungry anymore. I feel full. You know, when you get really, really hungry, it consumes your thoughts, doesn't it? Like, it's hard to think about anything else when you get really, really hungry. Like, someone who hasn't had food for five days isn't worried about, like, how does my hair look, right? They're not worried about what people are thinking about, and they're worried about, like, I'm hungry and I need to get some food. In today's passage, Jesus says that it is those who hunger and thirst for righteousness like that who will be satisfied. We're in a series uh, in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. The Beatitudes are the, the introduction to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And we've been uh, stressing throughout the series that there is a, a sort of progression to the Beatitudes. And so, so far, uh, we've looked at three of them. Blessed are the poor in spirit. So uh, those who acknowledge their spiritual poverty are blessed. And then Blessed are those who mourn, so those who acknowledge their spiritual poverty, their sin, they're, they're, and they see it for what it is, they'll mourn over their sin. And those who acknowledge their spiritual poverty and mourn their sin naturally are going to be humbled, they're going to be meek. Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And then those who, are, uh, who know their spiritual poverty, who've mourned their sin, who've been humbled and meek are going to hunger and thirst for the righteousness because they, that, that only God can give because they recognize their own spiritual emptiness. And so that's where we are this morning. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the passage and then pray and ask for God's help, and then we will uh, begin to unpack it. Matthew 5, verse 6. Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Let me pray. God, I thank you so much for your holy word, and I pray for your help now uh, as I preach. Apart from you, I can do absolutely nothing, and so God, I pray that you'd help me in my weakness. Um, I pray that you'd help me to, um, to faithfully teach and explain and apply this passage um, in a way that exalts Jesus, not me. And I pray for all of us that you'd help us to hear, to listen. Um, your word, you say in 1 Corinthians 2, the natural man cannot understand the things of God because they're spiritually discerned, they're spiritually understood, meaning it's only by your spirit that we can even understand and agree with and submit to your word. 
So help us to do that now, Holy Spirit. Change us, sanctify us, make us more like Jesus. And for any in here that have not tasted and seen that the Lord is good, for anyone here who has never become poor in spirit and, and has maybe been chasing after the things of the world to satisfy them, would you show them, open their eyes today to see that Jesus, you and you alone can satisfy our spiritual hunger and thirst. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, I want to remind us before we, we dump, jump in that every time we open up the Bible, we need to remember that, that this is God's living and active word. The Bible is different than any other book that exists because every other book that exists is something that someone said at one time in the past and now it's been said, but God speaks now through His Word. His Word is living and active, and no other book has the power to change you from the inside out, but God's Word, because it's living, does. The Holy Spirit takes the Word of God, and He changes us and produces transformation in us from the inside out. And so, if that's the case, then right here in this passage, God tells us who it is that has His blessing, and how we can come to have eternal satisfaction. That ought to get our attention, right? God himself is saying, here's who has my blessing. Here is who will be satisfied forever. That ought to make all of us sit up in our seats and go, okay, I'm ready. I want to know what God has to say this morning. So actually, let's just pause right now. I want everybody, just close your eyes and just ask God, God, please speak to me this morning. Okay, right now, just pause and pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so the main point of the sermon this morning is that God will satisfy the longing of everyone who wants to live in a way that is fully pleasing to Him. God will satisfy the longing of everyone who wants to live in a way that is fully pleasing to Him. I'm going to draw out three principles from this text. That's how the the message is going to be structured this morning, okay? So the first principle that I want to draw out from the passage is this. Every Christian hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Every Christian hungers and thirsts for righteousness. Now, when you initially hear this passage, you might be thinking of the imputed righteousness that comes through faith in Jesus. You know, the righteousness that Jesus gives us when we place our faith in Him. That's sometimes referred to as positional righteousness. It's our standing before God. It's how God counts us or reckons us when we stand before Him. And I want to be clear that it is gloriously true that Jesus satisfies our need for positional righteousness. In fact, there's no other way that you could ever stand righteous in God's sight apart from the righteousness that Jesus gives. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 and 22 says this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested or has been made known apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So what Paul is saying is that we cannot be made righteous on our own through the law. The law was never given to us so that we could achieve it and live up to it and then earn our good standing before God. What the law was meant to do was point us to the one who could save us. It points us to Jesus. 
Jesus came and lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. He fulfilled all righteousness, but then he died the death that we deserve on the cross. He took our curse upon himself so that by faith in him, he takes the curse of our sin on himself on the cross and he gives us his perfect righteousness as a free gift. And that's the reason that you can stand before God righteous, even though like you still sin, right? Like I still sin. So how, how is it that God can, a holy, a perfectly holy God can still love like people like you and me who still sin? It's because we're covered in the righteous garments of Jesus. And he has nailed the debt of our sin to the cross along with Christ. That is the good news. That's how Jesus satisfies our need for positional righteousness. But in this particular passage this morning, Jesus isn't talking primarily about positional righteousness. He's talking about practical righteousness. Our practical righteousness refers to our walk. It's doing what is right in God's sight. You see, a true disciple not only longs for right standing with God, but longs to have a right walk before God. We want to honor God with the way that we live, not to earn his favor, but because we've already received it, because we love him. Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey my commands, right? And so that's what a hunger and thirst for righteousness means. It's a desire to live in a way that's pleasing to God. And God's standard or what is pleasing to him is revealed in the Old Testament in God's law. The law is an expression of God's holy character or his righteousness. And But Jesus said the whole law could be summed up in this. What did he say? Who remembers? That's right. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says the whole law can be summed up in those commands right there. You see, the Pharisees of Jesus' day, they were the religious elite. They were the teachers, okay? And they did a really good job of conforming outwardly to God's law, right? But Jesus says, just a few verses later in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 20, he says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Now, those are some pretty shocking words because... The Pharisees were no slouches, okay? Like, these guys memorized the whole Old Testament, the whole law. They meticulously made sure they didn't violate any command. They made sure they ate all the right foods and that they followed all the right cleanliness laws down to the very jot and tittle of the law of God. And Jesus says, our righteousness needs to exceed theirs. Has anybody memorized the whole Bible in here? Anybody been to church every Sunday for your entire life? Never missed? Anybody tithe 10% of everything that you have, every paycheck for your entire life? So how is it that our righteousness is going to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? Here's what Jesus meant. A true hunger for righteousness is a desire to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and a desire to love your neighbor as yourself from within, from the inside out. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to have a 24-7, white-hot desire to love God every second of every day. Nobody lives like that. 
but it does mean that it's the consistent drumbeat of a disciple's heart to please the Lord. Psalm chapter 19, verse 14, David expresses it so well. He says, May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you, O God, my rock and my redeemer. What a beautiful passage to memorize and to pray consistently in your own life. Or Psalm chapter 119, verse 5, the psalmist cries out, Oh, that my actions would consistently reflect your decrees. That is the heart cry of a true disciple of Jesus. That is a picture of hungering and thirsting for righteousness. But where does this hunger and thirst come from? You see, we can't muster it up within ourselves, okay? It doesn't come from within. And this leads to the second principle. Principle number two, it is God who gives us a hunger and thirst for righteousness. The desire to please God is not natural to any human being on the entire planet. We are born into sin. Uh, Romans chapter 8 verse 7 says that the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Apart from the Spirit, people will blindly lust after the pleasures of the world and sin. Hungering for righteousness, honestly, is foolish to the world. It looks nonsensical. You know, many don't see the point of hungering and thirsting for righteousness because they think they're already righteous. What's the need to hunger and thirst to be righteous? I'm a pretty good person. It's because what people are tempted to do is compare themselves to their neighbors. And maybe compared to your neighbor, you do look pretty righteous. The trouble is that we're not going to be judged by the standard of how we compare to our neighbor. Right? God, remember, God sets the standard for righteousness. And when we're measured up to the standard that God sets, which is the law, every single one of us falls short. That's why we said that the Beatitudes is a progression. That's why it has to start with being poor in spirit. You won't hunger and thirst for righteousness until you're poor in spirit, until you recognize your need. But it could also be, you know, while some don't hunger and thirst for righteousness because they think they're already righteous, many others are too busy hungering for material things, for worldly pleasures. Satan has convinced them that the world can satisfy, and they're blind to the beauty of God and to his righteousness. I remember I grew up in church, and I didn't give my life to Christ until I was 24. Um, you know, I said I was a Christian, but I was not. I loved sin, and it was very evident from the way that I lived my life, no matter how I tried to present myself at church. Uh, I wasn't being honest. And I remember growing up in church and making fun of the people who took their faith in Christ seriously. Like, I remember looking at those people and thinking, wow, what a boring life. Like, what a, what a waste. Like, why not live a little bit and have fun? Like, you don't have to take this God thing that seriously. Like, what do you do? Read your Bible all day? And you, like, go to church every time the doors are open? And you like to go on mission trips and stuff like that? Like, what a boring life. That's honestly, that was my thought. I just, I thought they were crazy. Like, and and, and I, what was I doing? I was looking at people who were hungering and thirsting for righteousness and thinking, that's crazy. I would never do that. Why, why was that? It's because the, they had a, discovered a joy in a treasure that I knew nothing of yet. And here's the ironic thing. While I was sitting there calling them crazy, when I would go home deep down at night, I knew how miserable I was. I knew how empty I was. I knew that all the things that I was chasing, I just had to keep going back to them again and again and again. And every time I thought I was satisfied, I needed a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. 
because I was trying to fill my life with empty substitutes, with things that could not satisfy. We won't hunger and thirst for righteousness until God takes away our blind lust for sin and gives us a love for Him and His righteousness. By God's grace, He did that in my life when I was 24. That's the only reason I'm standing here today is because of God's grace. He graciously opened my eyes. Otherwise, I'd still be blindly following after the lust of my flesh, just like everyone else. You know, Jesus calls that process, that, that, that um, experience, He calls it being born again. And it's a gift of God's grace. And it happens when the Holy Spirit opens your spiritual eyes as somebody shares the gospel with you. And it, it's a mysterious miracle. It really is. It's kind of hard to explain, but it results in being made new from the inside out. As you hear about Christ dying for your sins, two things in particular happen. You, you, your spiritual sight is, is open to see two things in particular. First, you see the hideousness of your own sin that put Christ on the cross. My sin is so serious against God that the perfect Son of God had to shed His blood just to rescue me from it. That's the first thing you see. But at the same time, you see the beauty of His love in dying for you, a sinner. And you're amazed. Once you were blind to these realities, but then the Holy Spirit gives you sight, and it's seeing the beauty of Christ's love that changes us, that radically reorients our perspective on everything. It's like when, when you discover the glory of grinding your own coffee beans and making a pour over at home, you can never go back to the K-cup, right? The K-cup just loses its luster. You're like, I don't want to drink K-cup coffee anymore unless it's in a pinch because this pour over is supremely better. That's a silly illustration that when you discover the goodness and the satisfaction of Jesus that you were made to know and to, and to be loved by, the things of this world grow strangely dim. All of a sudden, the, what you once thought was foolish, hungering and thirsting for righteousness, becomes the only thing that you want to do. You will flee from sin and have a desire to know Jesus and to be like Him. Like a starving man who can think of nothing but food, a Christian hungers and thirsts for righteousness more than anything else. Andrew mentioned this passage last week. That's what happened to Paul. And in Philippians chapter 3, he said that he considered everything that he had been living for beforehand rubbish compared to the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. We were made by God to live for God, and there's nothing better than him. Once you taste and see that the Lord is good, your spiritual appetite can never be the same. It just can't. Has this happened in you before? Maybe right now, for the first time, the Holy Spirit is giving you spiritual sight as you hear the gospel. Perhaps that miracle is taking place in your heart right now. I pray that it is. And if, if, if you sense that that's happening, then ask Him. Ask Him right now to change you to make you a new creation. And if you are born again, stop to consider just how miraculous that is, that you're a Christian, that you see things this way, that there's actually a hunger and thirst for righteousness in your life. Like, God put that in there by His grace. Let's never lose sight of how amazing that is, of how miraculous that is, 
That's a reason to praise Him this morning, is it not? And once you're born again, this new hunger and thirst for righteousness changes everything, but it doesn't happen all at once. Christians continue to hunger and thirst because we don't yet perfectly reflect the beauty of God's character, right? If we did, we'd, we wouldn't need to hunger and thirst anymore, right? But we hunger and thirst knowing that the day is coming when we will be satisfied. And this leads to our third principle. God will satisfy our hunger and thirst for righteousness. God will satisfy our hunger and thirst for righteousness. Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I want to spend the remainder of our time unpacking that promise right there. You know, it can be distressing to continually see sinful motives in our hearts, to struggle to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Uh, John Newton wrote Amazing Grace, uh, and he once wrote, uh, he said, I am a riddle to myself, a heap of inconsistencies. <laughs> I find myself quoting that oftentimes in prayer, <laughs> like, I don't understand why I do the things that I do. I'm a heap of inconsistencies. I know that feeling so well. But the good news is that God promises to finish the work of sanctification that He started in us. Our struggle with indwelling sin does not put that promise in doubt either. In fact, it is our lack of righteousness which causes us to hunger and thirst that actually qualifies us. Look closely at what Jesus says here. Just think about His words. We are not blessed because we possess righteousness. We are blessed because we hunger and thirst for it, because we lack it and long for it. Those are the people who are blessed, not the people who think that they've somehow reached the pinnacle. I've obtained it. I'm righteous. And look down upon all the other poor souls who aren't as godly as they are. Those are not the people who are blessed. It's those who know their lack and who long for it, who hunger for it, who thirst for it. The great, do you see the grace of God in these Beatitudes? Jesus came for the poor, for the hungry, for the needy, for the sinner, for you, for people like you and me. That's who he pronounces blessing upon if we'll just agree with him that we need it. If you mourn your sin, if you have a longing to please God with all of your being, Jesus' promise is that you will be satisfied. Not only will he declare you righteous, he will make you righteous. And there are so many promises in the Bible I could point to. I just want to bring out one. Romans chapter 8, verse 29. This is about as rock-solid, airtight as you can get. There's no wiggle room for doubt to break into this Bible verse right here. Romans 8, 29. Listen to this, believer. Man. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Do you see what Paul is saying there? Before we were born again, God set us apart to be conformed into Christ-likeness. Before you were born, before you had done anything, God chose you, if you're a believer, and set you apart so that one day you will be sinless. You'll never sin again. You will not have one impure thought. 
come into your mind. You won't have one impure word come out of your mouth. There will not be a single impure action. You will be sinless and pure. That's just astonishing. Listen to the words of Richard Baxter. He's a Puritan, and he wrote a book called The Saints' Everlasting Rest. And it's basically just this big, long meditation on what heaven is going to be like, the new heavens and the new earth. I would strongly recommend this work. I want to read you a lengthy quote. He says, Therefore, Christian, never fear this. Once you are in heaven, you will sin no more. Is this not glad news to you who have prayed watched and labored against sin for so long. I know if you had the choice, you would choose to be freed from sin rather than be made heir of all the world. Well, wait until then, and you will have your desire. That hard heart, those vile thoughts that lie down and rise with you, that accompany you to every duty, that you could no more leave behind than leave your very self behind, will now be left behind forever. They might accompany you to death, but they cannot proceed a step further. Sometimes the discouragement over sin in our lives can be almost overwhelming. And the evil one will try to use it to convince you that God doesn't love you or that you're never going to break free from this sin. And that is why Matthew chapter 5, verse 6 is such a precious promise. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness shall be satisfied. Yet, in this life, our hunger and thirst is going to remain until we get there. So when you are hungry and you eat a big meal, you're hungry again six hours later, right? In the same way, we do receive satisfaction when we go to Jesus in prayer and in His Word, but we need to come to Him again and again, right? Jesus calls that abiding in Him. If we don't abide in Him, we cannot bear any fruit, the fruit of righteousness. So we must continually go to Him. If you just only eat one meal, right, and you never go eat again, that meal is only going to last you so long. The day is coming, Revelation 7 says, when, they will need, when speaking of those in heaven, they will neither hunger no more, no more nor thirst anymore. But that day is not here yet. And so, in God's wisdom, it is actually that regular abiding in Jesus that He uses to finish the work of sanctification He started in us. You see, something very important you need to understand. That promise that we looked at is gloriously true. God will finish the work of sanctification in us. That does not mean that we are passive participants. That doesn't mean, oh, well, I guess I can just sit on my hands and not put any effort into my Christian walk because once saved, always saved, so I can just you know, keep on doing whatever I want and one day God will change me. No, no. God doesn't just ordain the, mean, the ends. He ordains the means. For example, in evangelism, we know that God is sovereign over salvation. God will save those whom He foreknew and predestined before the foundation of the world. But He only saves people through the preaching of the gospel. God has chosen that that is the means through which He saves. In the same way, God has chosen that the means through which He will sanctify us is through the, what some theologians call the ordinary means of grace. What are the ordinary means of grace? 
Well, the most important one, I would argue, is probably the Word of God. It's reading Scripture and studying and meditating on Scripture. 2 Timothy 3 says that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for training in what? Righteousness. Right. Scripture is profitable to help us grow in righteousness, that very thing that you're hungering and thirsting for. So, are you hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Then get in God's Word. (laughs) It will help train you in righteousness. Someone who hungers and thirsts for righteousness is going to regularly be in the Word of God. And God's Word satisfies our longing and also helps us to grow in sanctification. Now, that's why we value Scripture-driven preaching, one of the values of our church. That's why I don't get up here and preach on topics that I feel like I want to talk about. I preach through the Scriptures. Andrew preaches through the Scriptures. Our elders, we teach from God's Word. Because what you need is God's Word to help you grow in godliness. And so we're always going to center our teaching in our sermons, in our life groups, in our discipleship. Everything is centered on the Word of God because what God has said is far more important than anything that I could say, right? So that's why we center everything on God's Word. But it's not just Sunday mornings. If you only eat one meal a week, you're going to be pretty emaciated, right? You need to regularly be in God's Word throughout the week if you want to grow in righteousness. And as you meditate on Scripture, God's powerful Word will help you grow. But prayer is also an important way that we grow in godliness. If you ever go, uh, take, a, take some time to read through Paul's prayers for the believers in the churches in his epistles, and notice the way that he prays for them. I'm sure that Paul pray, you know, was concerned about the knee surgery that they were going to have next week and things like that. But I do want to point out that when you read Paul's prayers... The primary thing Paul is praying for is their growth in godliness. Listen, just one example, Philippians 1, 10 and 11. It is my prayer that you would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Consider your own prayer life. Just think about when you spend time in prayer, what do you pray for, for your own life, and for others, for loved ones. How often do you ask God to help you grow in holiness, to be more like Jesus? How often is that the content of your prayers for others, for your family? Husbands, men, you need to be praying this over your wife and your kids every single day. Because I promise you, Satan's not sleeping and he's not resting. And he wants, he wants to snatch them if he can. But here's the thing. When, when, when we pray... <laughs> prayers like this, you know what's amazing? We don't have to wonder whether it's God's will to answer them. We already know it is. So like, it's an open invitation. Just pray for it and he's going to answer it. He's going to give it to you. Like, why would we not want to pray these things as often as possible? That's one of the reasons we gather together corporately as a church. Next Sunday is Second Sunday Prayer, where we're going to gather together once a month as a church body. And we pray for one another. One of the primary things we do is we pray for each other to grow in godliness and righteousness. And you might be thinking, Pastor Jared, isn't next Sunday the Super Bowl? And I will say, yes, it is. But at the end of your life, you're not, what are you going to be more concerned about? Who won the Super Bowl on Sunday or growth in godliness? <laughs> so, and we'll be done. You can, you'll probably be able to get back by the third quarter or something like that. All right. But 
I'm, that's fine. If you want to watch the Super Bowl, you do you. That's fine. I'm not, gonna, I'm not judging you, but I do hope that you'll come. I do hope that you'll come. Uh, third means of grace. There's lots of them, but I'll mention one more, and that's gathering uh, with the church. Gathering with the church is another means that God uses to help us grow in godliness. I've never met someone who hungers for righteousness who does not also long to be around the saints. They just do. If your greatest love is Jesus, then you're going to want to be around other people whose greatest love is Jesus. You think about, we we have fan clubs, right, for movies or sports and things, and what do those exist for? It's because you want to go get with other people who are excited about the same things that you're excited about, right? You like talking about it. You like wearing and purchasing the merchandise. You like playing the games, whatever it might be, whether it's sports or a game or something like that. Well, Jesus is the most important reality in our lives if we're a follower of Jesus. So it just makes sense that we want to be around other people who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And when we gather, we're able to exhort each other. We're able to admonish each other. We, As Hebrews 10 says, we can spur one another on to love and good works. So we're helping each other grow in righteousness. We're helping each other grow in godliness. Just think about something as simple as like, like when we stand and we sing worship songs together, and we're singing songs of praise that are declaring the gospel, reminding us of God's promise, is it not encouraging to hear a room filled with voices singing the same truths that you believe and being reminded that I'm not the only one on the planet who believes this. I'm surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Even something like that spurs us on. Or maybe it's a discipleship meetup throughout the week and you're struggling and you're discouraged because maybe what we talked about earlier, there's this besetting sin that you keep you just haven't been able to shake and you're doubting God's love for you. You're da- maybe even doubting your salvation and you get to meet with another believer who reminds you those whom he predestined, he, also, he, con- he predestined to be conformed into the image of his son, right? Like that helps us, spurs us on, it helps us grow in godliness. God uses these means of grace to help bring about the fulfillment of his promise to satisfy our longing for righteousness. I want to I close um, by answering one final question that I think is important before we wrap up our time together. What do you do when you don't hunger for righteousness? Maybe you're here this morning and you say, Pastor, I've had times in the past where I've hungered and thirsted for righteousness, where I've wanted to be like Jesus, but I just, I feel empty. I don't feel a hunger for God. I feel like my worship is hollow. I'm kind of scared because I don't know what's wrong with me. It makes me wonder, like, what's going on in my heart, in my life? I've been trying to read my Bible, but it just feels empty, like I'm just kind of doing it and walking away and not feeling any different. What do I do? What do you do if that's you? Now, there are a few possible reasons for this. I want to give four, uh, and hopefully this will be helpful to you if, if this is you. Or, and even if this isn't you and you're in a good season right now, I think it's important to pay attention to this because maybe there's somebody else in your life that you can encourage or somebody that you're discipling who may be wrestling with this, okay? So the first possible reason is that it could be that you've never been born again. And 
I don't say that lightly, but it is something to step back and to examine yourself on. Remember, it's only those who are poor in spirit and who mourn their sin who will hunger and thirst to display the beauty of God's character in their life. And maybe you just admit today, I don't know if I've ever felt that way. I've grown up in church. I prayed the prayer one time. I got baptized. But when you talk about like mourning over your sin and being broken before God and and like having the fear of the Lord in my life, things like that, I, I don't know that I've ever experienced that before. I'm not sure if I've experienced this miraculous new birth you talked about earlier. If this is you, ask God to show you how spiritually poor you really are this morning. God, show me my need for you. Show me my emptiness. Show me my brokenness. And help me to see that Jesus is the only one who can fulfill this need that I have. Ask Him to give you a hunger for what will really satisfy your soul. Another possible reason you may not hunger and thirst for righteousness is that you are a Christian, but right now you're turning to other things for satisfaction. I call it spiritual junk food. You're snacking on spiritual junk food. If you snack on the delights of this world, it will dull your appetite for Christ. And we can even snack on very innocent things like sports or hobbies or shopping or screen time or physical fitness. It could be all sorts of things that we could put into Jesus' place as a cheap substitute to snack on, but whoever or whatever it is, if you are neglecting to abide in Jesus and turning to something else, it will dull your hunger and thirst for righteousness. You see, here's kind of the ironic thing. The more you go to Jesus to be filled, the more you abide in Him, the more it stirs your hunger for more, right? It's like once you taste and you see that the Lord is good, you just want more. You just want to drink even deep, more deeply from that well. And so it could be that your lack of hunger and thirst is because you haven't been going to that well. You've been putting other things in its place. You're eating spiritual cotton candy and it's giving you a stomach ache. And what you need to do is you need to put those things aside and feast on real food, which is Christ. A third possible reason you may not be hungering and thirsting for righteousness is that you are a Christian trusting in other things for your justification. Sometimes, here's what I mean, sometimes Christians fall into the trap of thinking that Jesus saves us initially, but then it's up to us to grow in Christlikeness, to become like Him. Paul called it starting in the Spirit and trying to finish in the flesh. And you subconsciously start basing your standing with God on your performance. So if you had a really good week of reading your Bible, I'm feeling good about myself. Let's go. I'm ready to charge the gates of hell with a water pistol. Right? Anybody ever had weeks like that? You feel good. But if you had a week where maybe you didn't read your Bible very much, or... You looked at something on the computer you shouldn't have. I mean, you just feel like empty, broken, distant from God. And you feel like God doesn't love you. You feel like God's promises don't apply to you. And here's what will happen. If you're viewing your relationship with God like that, then abiding in Jesus will feel like a duty, not a delight. It'll feel like something you need to do to try to stay in His good graces 
rather than something that you are invited to do because you've already become a recipient of His grace. And here's what I want you to understand. You will not hunger and thirst for righteousness if it feels like a duty to be performed. Who, who hungers and thirsts for a duty to be performed? Like, that doesn't sound appealing. That doesn't sound like, boy, I can't wait to work really hard to earn my spot with God. Let me, let me read my Bible. No! That, you're not going to want to abide in Jesus and hunger and thirst for righteousness if you're seeing like that. So what's the solution? It's look to the cross. Look to the cross of Christ. Christ died for sinners. He died for people who screw up their quiet time. He died for people who looked at something on the computer they weren't supposed to this week. He died for, for, for moms who screamed at their kids. He died for teenagers who disrespected their parents. He died for sinners. That's who Jesus died for. And so, brothers and sisters, Christians want to run to Jesus and be like Jesus, not so that He will love us, but because He already loves us. And that's what you got to remember. It's the beauty of His love that awakens our hunger for His righteousness. And the fourth reason that you may not be hungering and thirsting for righteousness this is the last one I'll give, and then we'll close. It could just be that you're a Christian struggling through a period of spiritual dryness or depression. Okay, You might just be in a period of spiritual dryness or depression that isn't necessarily your fault, not something you did. It's just sometimes Christians go through dry seasons. Believe it or not, everybody does, including me. Sometimes God permits these seasons of inexplicable melancholy, and they remind us of our weakness, and they teach us to cling to Him. So if you're sitting down right now and reading your Bible or praying and it, and it feels hollow, or you're sitting down to do it but your heart and your affections don't seem to follow you, as disconcerting as that can be, I know I've been there many times, as disconcerting as it can be for indwelling sin to keep us from doing what we want to do, which is to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I, man, I know the frustration when you want to love God with all your heart and you just don't feel like your heart's following, right? Like your desires. And you're, like you even have those mornings where you wake up and you're groggy and you're trying to drink coffee and your Bible's open and you're like, I am just not feeling it today, right? I'm like reading my Bible and I feel like I should be more joyful. I should be more excited, like reading about Jesus dying for me, but all I'm doing is yawning and you can feel guilty about that. That's a normal experience, okay? We're in the flesh. That's why Jesus' promise is so precious, because guess what? There ain't going to be any yawning in Jesus' presence. We're not going to look at Jesus and go, ho-hum, when we're in the new heavens and the new earth. Our flesh is going to be gone. We're not going to have an impure thought. We're not going to have a dishonoring thought at all. Jesus is going to get all the glory He deserves from us every second of every day for all of eternity in heaven. And so we can look forward to that day. If this is you, if you're in a spiritual dry season, let me just encourage you to wait on the Lord because that season will pass, okay? So wait on the Lord. Remember, the very fact that it's bothering you, that you want to hunger and thirst more, that is a hunger and thirst for righteousness. That's the very de definition of what hungering and thirsting for righteousness is. If you weren't a Christian, it wouldn't really bother you. It wouldn't bother you. You wouldn't really care that much that you're not hungering and thirsting after him. 
The Spirit puts, remember, who gives us the hunger and thirst? God does. So if it's in you, it's because God gave it to you, because you belong to Him, you're His sheep, and nobody and nothing is ever going to snatch you out of His hand. Just period, okay? This morning, we've seen in Matthew 5 that every Christian hungers and thirsts for righteousness. It's God who gives us a hunger and thirst for righteousness. And it is God who satisfies our hunger and thirst for righteousness.